0: Big week, don't know if you noticed, we got a new president this week. Maybe you missed it. Maybe you lived in a hole all week. And if you did miss it, you may be thinking to yourself, lucky me. I don't know. Um, One of the things that was impressed upon my mind this week was this idea of uh, how content I am. I... I'm just as content now as I was before the election, before an inauguration, before a new Congress was seated, only because I watched what went on leading up to the inauguration and then at the inauguration. And my mind kept going to this idea of how many people were there, the hundreds of thousands of people that now thought, now, that their needs were going to be met. And then there's a whole other wave of people that blew into town the next day, right? And they wanted to argue because now there's this, this change. Now their needs weren't going to be met. And they wanted to make it known to everybody, you know, we have needs too. And, um, and all of this went down, unfortunately, uh, in a, a lot of it went down in a not so nice manner. Because when people are fearful that their needs aren't going to be met, it really can bring out the ugly side. Of everybody, and yet inside of me, I kept thinking how gracious and thankful I was to the Lord that for the past 43 years of my life, I've never wondered where my whether my needs were going to be met or not because I wasn't trusting in something or somebody else to meet my needs other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet we look around in the world today and it is so evident to us how people feel they must look somewhere else in order to get their needs met. Um, Little girls uh, look to men to meet their needs. Men oftentimes look to a position or title to have their needs met. Uh, today, there's a couple big football games on. A lot of those people that step on that field today, they're going to look to their needs being met through an on-the-field victory or a paycheck or a trophy. Humanity, as we've seen, oftentimes looks to government to meet their needs. And even churches are susceptible to this. Churches sometimes can look to budgets and churches can look to pastors or priests in order to meet their needs. And it's not the case. On and on it goes. And yet over and over in God's Word, He declares where our real needs are met. And that's what I want to share with you this morning in John chapter 8, where we pick up in verse 31. The Lord Jesus is has entered into quite a confrontational, contentious sort of conversation with the Jews and the religious leaders in Jerusalem during a very energized and passionate period of time known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And he continues this conversation. He he just got done saying that I am... Uh, the water of life, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. And it's really creating this consternation among the Jews and those who lead the Jews. And it brings us to the point in the conversation today in verse 31, where the conversation kind of wraps up with this. We're going to read it in two parts this morning. The first part, 31-47. to So Jesus said to the Jews... Who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone or everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain. Uh, in the house forever, the Son remains forever. So, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Ab- that Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. There is not. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works your father did. And they said to him, you were not born of sexual immorality, or we were not born of sexual immorality. Let me just take a time out there. That's a pretty offensive statement that they just said. They're slamming... Uh, they're they're slamming his mother, and his family. Apparently, they people do that, don't they? Uh, when they when they feel like they're beginning to be pressed, what do people do? They go off topic and they immediately go for that which is irrelevant but will hurt you personally the most. So their statement to him is, you know, well, you know, we have Abraham as our father. We came from good homes, unlike you, who is a a, a child of a a you know what. They say, we have one Father, even God. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father. Now He reveals who their real Father is. It's not Abraham. You are of your real Father, the devil. And your will is to do your Father's desires. The words that Jesus speaks here could not be more offensive to these people. True, but offensive. He decides at this moment, as my daughter Annie has become, started to fall in love with ice hockey. She's been to a couple of Hershey Bears games this year. This last game that she went to, she was privy to see five fights. Found that fascinating paid attention to every detail of the fight. She came home and she told me, she said, you know, they take their gloves off before they fight. You know, they pull their their shirts over their head before they fight. You know, the referees never get involved until the guys get so tired they have to stop. Like, yep, this is just all part of the tradition. And then they'll shake hands later on. Uh, I said, but they drop gloves. That's the first thing they do before they fight. It's like a symbol saying, let's go. Jesus drops gloves here. Because He can. Uh, because He holds all truth in Him. But what's telling is kind of what's, what's the undercurrent here, because the, the, the Jews were claiming that they had a certain position, they had an entitlement, they had their needs being met through specific things, and Jesus just kind of turns that all on its head. And this is what He tells them. He says to them, You think that you have what you need because of who you are and where you've come from. I'm telling you that the real way to have your needs met, the real way to contentment is not found in Abraham. It's not found in position and title. The real way your needs are met is found in me. And he goes on to describe what those are based upon this argument. And the first thing he says to them is this. Point one, in Jesus Christ, we all have Freedom. Freedom. If the Son has set you... One of my favorite verses in John 8. If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Then you are free absolutely. Then you are free unequivocally. There's nobody who can take that freedom away from you because Christ has given it to you. If we're set free in Christ, it begs the question, church, what are we set free from? Because Jesus keeps referring to them being slaves. Slaves to what? Do you remember what He said? He said, you're slaves to sin. Ooh, how ugly of a conversation that is for everybody to have even today. Yet alone, to look these people in the eye and say, you are slaves of sin. And as the primary point, Jesus says here that we're free from sin and let's look at Paul's words he he kind of expounds on this in Romans 6 he said for when you were slaves to sin he's talking to all of us here he said for when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness meaning free meaning you didn't you were you weren't free to partake in righteousness he meant that you were free or separated from righteousness so when you were a slave to sin, you were separate from anything that was pleasing to God. But, in verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Meaning, sin doesn't give you fruit that's real. It, it Sin kind of tastes good for a season. Sin kind of eases us for a season. But there's no lasting fruit that comes from sin. He says, For the end of these or those things is death. There's only one fruit that comes from sin, and that is death. Verse 22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, meaning cleansing. The fruit you get now from Christ is in freedom in Christ is this cleansing. And its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So much of what Jesus says later in this conversation with the Jews details what freedom from sin really means. Let me just kind of tip my hat a little bit. What He's saying here is, hey, Jews religious people really religious people who think you're getting your needs met everything you need is found in something else let me tell you this when you are free in me you are free from all those familial and cultural and religious requirements that you think make you who you are that all that can be summed up in one name abraham you think because you have abraham that you're free not talking about that kind of freedom. And then you think, well, he says to them, you're not only going to be free from these familial, cultural, religious requirements that just seem impossible to you, but I'm also going to free you from the words of the devil himself, which he calls their father. And the words of the devil are always lies and deceit. Listen to me. This is what he does. Satan loves to get in your ear and tell you lies. He loves to tell you things like you're worthless, you've failed beyond redemption. He loves to tell you lies like you can never really experience true healing. He loves to tell you things like that person Uh, believes this about you and this person believes that about you and you're never going to be or amount to anything. He loves to tell you things like, why don't you, he whispers these things, he says, just give up. Just give up. And then he also loves to tell you us lies like this. You deserve more. More earthly things. He loves to tell us that we are entitled He loves to tell us that we must do this and we must do that. All of Satan's words that he whispers to to us are in complete contrast to the truth of Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes into a person's life, it's like he drops gloves and literally punches Satan in the face to say, no longer do you have control over and there's no authority that you have in the truth of. Or perceived truth, which is actually lies that you have been speaking into this person's life anymore. They do not need to believe one thing that comes from you anymore. And maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you've been believing something about yourself for years and years, and you need to be set free from that. Maybe it's something that a parent said to you when you were 14. Maybe it was something that that uh, somebody that you cared about deeply told you about yourself that made you feel like a failure. Maybe it's something that an ex-spouse told you in the process of a divorce that made you feel this big. And I'm just here to tell you that Jesus Christ does not settle for the lies that the evil one would have us try and base our lives on. He came to set us free free from those things. he is the. He, Jesus said, not only is it just lies that come out of his mouth, he goes one step further. He said, he's the father of lies. So Satan lies to you, and then you know what he does? He uses other people to lie to you as well. If you're in Christ, that is none of his business anymore. The second thing, oh, mind you, I mean, that's a good thing to be freed from, but then Jesus just kind of puts it all in a ball, and he says, oh, by the way, and you are free from eternal death. There's no punishment for your sin anymore. The second thing Christ tells the Jews here is they're all about Abraham, 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 our father, our family. Jesus says, no, 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 in me you have family. In Jesus Christ, we all have family. Jesus makes this very curious statement He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Uh, To understand it, we have to understand Abraham. To understand Abraham, you have to understand his two boys. He had two. Uh, Remember, the first one's name was Ishmael. And the second one was the son of promise named Isaac. Let me read to you in Genesis 21 the story of these two boys. Talking about Ishmael in verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day, or Isaac rather, that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. If you remember, God had promised Abraham and his wife Sarah that they would have a son in their old age. But they were, especially Sarah, very doubting, laughing, almost like mocking God at the idea that he could deliver on the promise. So what did they do? They decided, to, as many of us have done in our life, we become impatient, right? And we decide to take matters into our own hands and we overstep God and we we push ahead with a plan that's not God's plan, so, as in the day, I mean, a, a woman in the home had a, a, a maidservant. This maidservant, this slave, her name was uh, Hagar, and uh, she decided that, well, Abraham, since I'm not conceiving, why don't you take my maidservant and have a child with her? So Abraham, like adult, said, all right, whatever you want. So he decides to sleep with her maidservant. They have a son, his name is Ishmael, But the thing is that Ishmael was born in sin. He was not born out of the faith and promise of God. So then, when the second son comes along, Isaac, who was born out of the promise of God, out of the faith of Abraham and Isaac, or Abraham and Sarah, Isaac comes along, and now there's this, uh, you know, Conflicting, there's just this confrontation in the household. Obviously nobody's comfortable with Ishmael anymore. Sarah asks the slave and her son to be kicked out of the house, and it's the son of promise who remains. Now to get this is to get the words that Jesus just proclaimed. In Ishmael, he was the son of slavery. He was the result of sin. He was the child of sinful disobedience and deceit, and he was kicked out of the family. But in Isaac, he was the son of God's promise and faith. In him was seen the identity and the continuance of family. It was through Isaac that God was going to bring about His promises to the world. The Jews thought they were part of God's family because of genetics. The Jews thought they were a part of God's family because Abraham was their father. And in reality, what makes us a part of God's family is the realization that genetics doesn't get us there. You can't overcome sin. You become a part of God's family by being a child of promise. We are children of faith. When you come to Jesus Christ and you say, I... I'm a reprobate in sin. I, I, I can't fix myself. I mean, I have good days and bad days, but I'm pretty sure that the majority of the time I do a really, really good job of displeasing You, Lord. I mock people. I disagree with people. Bad things come out of my mouth. I, I lust in my mind and in my heart and in my eyes. I, 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 I mistreat people constantly. I, I say things that aren't true. And I can't control this most of the time, Lord. And when we come to God with that truth, we're faced with a choice. Do we want to be slaves of that? Or do we want to trust in the deliverance and promise that can come only through God in Jesus Christ? Christ, the Son of promise, came into the world in order that He might die and take the penalty of our sin. And when we do that, when we accept that, God says, now guess what? It's not because of Abraham. It's not whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. What makes you part of the family is that the Son has set you free. It's that the Son has paid for your sin. You're now adopted. The Bible says we are co-heirs in Christ. Listen to this in Paul's words. Listen to this contrast here of slavery versus family in Romans 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It's like saying Daddy. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with him i love that you're free from the spirit of slavery aren't we we're free from the spirit of fear that comes from being in sin we've been adopted my children do as do yours i'm sure they disappoint all the time you kick them out of the house no do you love them and discipline them and love them some more yes And that's what God does to His children. And in Christ, we have that family. The third thing Jesus tells us here, so if our needs are met, if we're being honest, we are free in Him, we have family in Him, and then point three, in Jesus Christ, we have truth. Truth. A lot of stuff flying at us in the world today. A lot of voices in the room. Crowded rooms full of crowded voices. 24-hour news cycles, talking heads all over the place, actors and musicians who think they have two cents of knowledge to rub together to give an opinion on Twitter, telling you what's true and what's not true. You just look at that march yesterday and see that there's not a lot going on up here with regard to most of the people from Hollywood who spoke. So what is true? There's so many things vying for our allegiance, for our truth. There's always a a new agency in our life that's trying to take precedence. There's there's people who wrestle with, you know, well, there's so many holy books out there. Which holy book is true? One form of education over another must be better, you know. One political party stance over another must be true. I'm just saying... They're both full of liars. Not just both. Every political party out there is full of liars. You know why? Because they're made up of people like you and I. When we look at political parties, we complain about them, but we're just looking in the mirror, really, at a reflection of ourselves. So where do you find truth? We see here that Jesus is the locus of truth. We're told as much in Paul's words. In Ephesians 4, Paul said, But that is not how you learned about the Messiah, assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him, because the truth is in Jesus. You took off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You're being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. If you don't remember anything else of that whole entire verse, I want you to remember this phrase, because the truth is in Jesus. Anything contradictory to or outside of the teaching and truth of Jesus Christ is not true. Anything outside of His Word is not true. If it's contradictory to this. That's why I felt compelled to just kind of mention the reality of the sanctity of life because it's become so demeaned in our culture today. I remember in seminary taking one of my favorite classes, believe it or not, was a a Christian ethics class. And we had to sit there. And and some of you guys have been in seminary. Maybe you've been through this class. But it's amazing as a pastor how fast and furious difficult questions can come. And I, I can remember the first time I stood in a hospital hallway and somebody asked me, is it okay with God if we turn off the ventilator machine? That's a sanctity of life question. And it's not something you just make up on the spot. You have to to be versed in the truth of Christ and understand His view of life. You have to understand His value of life. And to answer those kind of questions, I think any pastor worth his salt would tell you that it's way above their pay grade. Like they do not want to answer that question over and over again. But here Paul and Jesus, they, they compare darkened minds to the hearts of other people who are people who are in truth. There's people who are in Christ's truth and then there are those who are darkened. Truth isn't what we make it. That's a popular belief today. Your truth is okay for you and my truth is okay for me and let's just get along. Well, I I don't have a problem with getting along, but I don't have to get along by agreeing that your truth is true. If two polar opposite things exist, they can't both be true. There's truth and then there's that which is not. And Christ says, in me is truth and truth is found in my Word. Truth isn't something we make up. It's not something that's relative, meaning that the truth isn't something that shifts from day to day or hour to hour or politician to politician. It's not something that's made up based upon blogs. Truth isn't something that's given based upon some sort of special revelation. or It's not something that... Truth isn't just because they say it's science doesn't make it true. Because God has done a lot of true things outside the realm of... Of science. Just having a conversation with my boy the other day about um, creation. And everybody's like, gosh, just those Neanderthal Christians who think that the world is only like 10,000 years old and that it was created in six days. What a bunch of hokey, uneducated Neanderthals. And, uh, they point to the fact that it's clear. You can look at the earth and you can see how old it is. We've dated, scientists have dated these things to be millions of years old. Surely the earth is a million years old. And I just asked my son one question. I said, how old was Adam when God created him? So, I, don't, I don't know, but I think he was an adult, right? Yeah. So is it possible that God created an adult earth Is it possible that God created an earth that had the appearance of agedness to it? Sure. The other thing I said was, you know, when you take, when you cover the whole earth in water, things take on a dramatically different appearance. And if you don't believe me, just go visit the shoreline someplace after a hurricane comes through. You want to see the power of God? He can wipe out an entire beach, city, community. You know, a hurricane has the power to do that. Cover the whole earth in water and watch what happens. All I'm saying by this is simply that what we perceive as what has to be true, because we are scientifically minded, God mocks and laughs at such reason. Our wisdom is foolishness to Him. If you want to really trust in what's true, start with the reality of Christ. And Jesus says some very pointed things here about truth. The first thing He says is this. Truth in your note sheet is known by abiding in His Word. If you want to know what's really true, fasten yourself, abide, remain in, and that word abide should sound familiar, remain in His Word. We'll talk more about abiding when we get to John 15. But the Scriptures which Christ authored, this book which Jesus Christ wrote, the Gospel accounts which testify to Him. If you want to know the truth, abide in this Word. Spend time in it. Remain in it. Camp out in it. Make it your go-to. If you're spending more time on blogs, you're spending more time on Twitter, you're spending more time in people's opinions and scientific reasoning and writings than you are in the teachings of Jesus Christ, you're going to have a hard time grasping that. He also tells the Jews this. He says, one, he says to them very pointedly, you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. This is tough. What he's saying to them is, you're incapable of receiving the truth. My words find no place in you. The Greek word here is koreo. Koreo. It means you have not granted admittance of my word into your life. Think of it like a gatekeeper or an acceptance thing. You have not allowed my word to permeate your life, hence, hence you are not able to receive truth. It has no place in you. And the second thing he says to them is, you are seeking to kill me because I, the Christ, speak God's truth. That should tell us something. Even from the days that Christ walked the earth, His truth was so offensive to people that there were those that were going to disagree so vehemently that they were going to want to see you dead. So, welcome to the club, Neanderthal. We are going to always be viewed this way. It's always been this way. Here it's also important how Christ's words correlate to what God affirms through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Paul said, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are all folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, being Christians, we have the mind of Christ. Hey, what a great assurance. What do we have? We have everything in Him. What does that include? You have the mind of Christ. The other thing He tells the Jews, He said, truth is known by abiding in His Word, and truth in and of itself is free. See, our, I won't expound upon this a lot, but I will say this. When we, our sinful minds and our hearts default to this notion that whatever God has for us, It must be restrictive, it must be demeaning, and it will mean loss for us. God's will is that He, like some sort of totalitarian ruler or dictator, His desire is to demean us and limit us and restrict us and humiliate us. That's what God's Word exists for. And if you listen to the culture around you, that's what you're going to start to believe. I'm just telling you this. I've devoted my life to this Word... For the past 30 plus years and everything about it has freed me it has given me such freedom and um, deliverance and comfort, and hope and a good future the person who surrenders to the truth I think will find that God is not out to be restrictive and demeaning and totalitarian and dictatorial in your life. God's desire is to see you joyous and free. Let me read to you the second half of this encounter as we close today with the uh, with the Jews in John eight. Picking up in verse forty eight, it gets even more contentious. So maybe coming to one of the climaxes of the Gospels, the Jews answered him as if you hadn't been offensive enough. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, they just got done calling his mom a harlot, and now they've doubled down and said, Not only that, but you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he... It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do not. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham. I love it. He talks here as if he was actually there with Abraham. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen, he says. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Point four is this. In Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. I pray that you're not tired of hearing this message. I don't tire of proclaiming it. If you are in Jesus Christ and His truth, you have eternal life. If there was a a time where you came to Him and you said, I give to you my sinful self, broken, I acknowledge that I'm a broken sinner. And the only hope I have is You. I believe that You died on the cross for me. I believe that when You died on the cross, You took all my sins unto Yourself and You gave me forgiveness and righteousness. If that has happened in your life by faith, then Jesus Christ has become not only your Savior, but your King, your Lord, your Father, your Deliverer. And He has given you, instead of sin and slavery, He's given you eternal life. The day is going to come where everybody in this room is going to close their eyes one last time. We don't like to think about it, and we certainly don't like to talk about it. But the day will come where every single one of us will die. Do you know what happens at that moment? If you're being honest, do you know what happens to you at that moment? I've invested in the truth, so I do. One of two things happens. Well, one guaranteed thing is that the Lord will judge the living and the dead. To those who are in Him, He has granted the promise of eternal life. To those who are not in Him, stands eternal damnation and judgment in hell. Christ came to free us and give us eternal life. He says to those who keep His Word, you will not taste death. Keep The word is teros, meaning you are someone who is guarding and protecting as if from loss. Something treasured that you couldn't bear to lose. If your existence is guarding and protecting the truth of who Jesus Christ is, then eternal life is yours. You cling to it as if it were your own. But what does it mean to cling to Two quick verses here as we close. Hebrews 2.9. The writer of Hebrews said, But we see Him who was for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. He He tasted death so that we might not have to taste death. But then Paul goes on in Romans 5 to elaborate a little bit more, and he says this, For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam, they were made, they, that many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life, through Christ Jesus our Lord. The truth of the scripture, the high truth of the scripture is this that there is no eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. John 14:6 I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody You can't come through Abraham, you can't come through Mohammed, you can't come through Buddha, you can't come through your own aestheticism, you can't come through your own highway of thought, you can't come through Madonna or any other celebrity. There's no way to achieve eternal life. You can't get there by being good on Twitter or Facebook. The only way you get eternal life is through trusting in Jesus Christ. One last thought is this. Keep saying one last thought. There's so many things here. Quite, I promise, is it? Quite a climactic statement at the end of this feast. Everything's coming to a head here in Jerusalem, and they're quite, you can't even, how could you know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old before Abraham was, I am. He said, I am living water. I'm the light of the world. But nothing tops the statement of Jesus Christ when he just stops with, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal. Why can you know all these things we receive from Christ are true? How can you know that all these things that he says he is for you, everything that we need, how can you know that you can count on it? Because of these two words, I am. I am. It's the Tetragrammaton. It's the it's the high point, the fancy word for it. The, the name God gave Himself when He met with Moses on that mountain. Moses said, alright, you want me to go deliver? You want me to go deliver these people? How am I supposed to do that? Why don't you just give me a name? Who am I supposed to say is even sending me? What an audacious question to ask in the first place, but God was gracious enough to answer it. He said, I'll tell you who. You just say, I am who I am. That's who sent me. I am who I am. Everything that is existence is in me. Nothing apart from me exists. Everything that's true, everything that was and will be is in me. I don't need you, Moses, to do anything for me. I don't need anybody to speak truth into me because I'm the summation of all truth. I am everything. I am truth. I am love. I am forgiveness. I am joy. I am a future. I'm hope. I am happiness. I am everything in me. You want a need met? Start with me, because I am. That's what he said to Moses. And that's what he said to the Jews that day in Jerusalem. And they knew when they heard that title, Tetragrammaton, when he said, I am, they knew it because they had hung their entire life on it. And when this man from Nazareth, this 30-some-year-old carpenter, stands there and says these words, it is blasphemy to them. It wasn't blasphemy to Jesus because it was just true. That's why they picked up stones. And in a typical Jesus fashion, you know, it's like they went to stone him, but he was gone. He's there in this crowd, in the middle of Jerusalem, all these people standing around him. He's teaching. You can imagine the hubbub of the feast. And he says, I am. And they're like, what? Start grabbing stones and they turn back around and he's gone. Because he's cool that way. No other way to put it. I mean, like, it's cool. I mean, like, people just disappear. They walk through walls, which Jesus did with a physical body. When you do stuff like that, I mean, it's just cool. And awesome in a godly way. The statement here that Jesus makes claims absolute deity. It proclaims equality with the Father. It proclaims that He is eternal. It proclaims that He is absolute sovereign. It proclaims to all of us that He has complete authority over sinners. He has complete authority over the righteous. It proclaims to us that there's not a religious institution in the world today that He does not have authority over. Everywhere on this Sunday morning and throughout the week, there will be blasphemous cults that are meeting in the name of worship and Jesus Christ is authority over all of them as well as authority over us here this morning. It means that Jesus Christ is the I Am, is the authority over the Jews. It means that He's authority over the Gentiles. He has authority over the haters. He has authority over the lovers. He has authority over the do-gooders. He has authority over the hurting. He has authority over the unborn and over the born. He has authority over the politicians. He has authority over nations. And the entire world, there is nothing that exists that Jesus Christ does not have authority over. And yet He chooses to proclaim to us that everything that is mine is yours. And yet we fight Him in our sinful hearts and we say, you know what, God? You want to give me all of that, and yet guess what? In my sinful heart I proclaim to you that you're not enough. Shame on us. The Jews hated Him And yet Jesus did nothing more than to offer them everything. And there are people in this world today that still do the same thing. If you're here and you need to know that you have a future and a hope and a life bigger and better than yourself, today is the day you trust in Him. And that's how I'm going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you the opportunity to respond to Him and do that right now. Let's pray.